Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat in Thornton, Colorado. I'd like to welcome everyone out to another Tuesday evening Torah study in the book of Galatians. We are working our way through a commentary entitled Exegeting Galatians that I myself put together. Let's open with some prayer and then we'll entertain some liturgy and get started this evening, okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King Lord, we are excited about gathering around your words. Lord, we know that you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so for that reason, Lord, we press in. We seek to be uh, diligent about the Father's business. Lord, we seek to be um, serious about our service to you and towards one another. For indeed, um, these are the two greatest commandments that you describe for us, loving God and loving our neighbor. And so, Lord, we press into your words because we want to be a people that is marked out by a service and a love for God and a service and a love for one another. We don't want to just study for study's sake. Lord, we thank you for the season that we're in, that we're right in the middle of counting the Omer. Father, that we are working our way from Pesach to Pentecost, from being set free by the blood of Messiah to being filled with the Spirit of Messiah. Lord, if we look at the bigger picture that is painted by the bookends of this time period that we're in, Passover is the beginning of the season of our freedom in Yeshua. And then we went through the unleavened bread and the Omer sheet, and now we're um, counting our way uh, 50 days towards the commemoration of two great events, not just the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But Father, we need to remind ourselves that Judaism has preserved for us that this time period at Pentecost is also the commemoration of Matan Torah, the giving of your words at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And if we just focus on Pentecost alone, Lord, we realize that there are two great pictures that are painted by this festival as well. If indeed it is the commemoration of the giving of the law, as well as the outpouring of the Spirit, which I believe that it is, Lord, then I'm reminded that without... Uh, with the with the giving of the words, Lord, I am rooted and secured in your promises. Your words are a, sh a sure anchor for my soul. And Lord, by the same token, your spirit enables me, empowers me to be a child of the living God, to be a a um a loyal 
of a covenant member. Uh, it enables me to be a witness. Lord, your spirit enables to me to, to share the good news of Yeshua with those who don't yet know. So, Lord, I'm given two great lessons by this festival of Shavuot, of Pentecost. And that is, without the word of God in my life, uh, I will, um, or I'll be lost. I won't have my anchor. And so I need the word, Lord, and I need the spirit. I need the word and I need spirit. I need both of those in my life. And so thank you, Father, for for drawing us close to you. Thank you for raising us up. Thank you for giving us a platform. Thank you for giving us a love and a sincere desire to seek your face and to share this good news with others. Thank you for the book of Galatians and thank you for superintending um, Paul's writing of it. Bless us as we embark on another study. And we'll be careful to praise you in all of these things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, let's date stamp our recording tonight. Uh, today is May the 17th, 2016. And as I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of a commentary that I wrote entitled Exegeting Galatians. And we're working our way um, just week by week through the notes. They're about 180 or so pages long. If you're interested in joining us each Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, you can find me on the web, www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Right along the very top of my webpage, of my home site there, there's a link that says Exegeting Galatians. If you click on it, you'll find all the information that you'll need uh, to view and print the study. You can scroll down through the page and find information about the live uh, internet class that we're doing every Tuesday evening. And of course, you'll find the audio recordings that I post each uh, week uh, that I make. In other words, I record these live, I'm I'm live for it with you now if you're with me in the uh, class tonight, but um, about usually about a day or two later after I've done some editing, I throw it up on the internet, I post it up on the internet, and I also push it uh, publish it to iTunes. So you can find me in the in the iTunes under a podcast there. So I personally invite you to come out and join us every Tuesday evening. We're working our way down through the commentary and basically. Um, there are ten topical sections to the commentary. We're now in topical section number five, entitled Covenantal Nomism and Justification. After we work our way through all ten topical sections, we will turn to a look at the text proper, essentially a, a verse-by-verse, kind of on a selective basis, of course, a verse-by-verse look at the book, and um, that will be... Um, That'll be later on, I imagine, probably a few months from now. The reason it's taking a little longer than some other studies that I've done in the past is because I'm not in a hurry. I hope you're not in a hurry. Um, I could have um, simply made this an audiobook where I just read through my commentary, and if that were the case, I probably would have been done in less than a month, maybe maybe two months at the most where I just read page by page and don't stop and interject. But we're taking our time. I want to go through the notes, and I want to stop and explain the notes and give you the opportunity to hear my thoughts as the author. So I don't want this to be simply an audiobook. By the same vein, I don't want to belabor the point too much that we stretch this out for years. I don't want to lose you over the course of time. So I hope that you're able to follow along uh, page by page each week. Uh, one last reminder, and then we'll get started with some liturgy. 
Um, this is a 10-week on, 2-week off course. So each semester is 10 weeks long. Uh, 10 weeks on, 2 weeks off, and then we start our semesters over again and just keep going through the notes. Let's entertain some liturgy tonight. I don't have this pulled up on the screen, but I just want to read the um, the blessing for the Omer since we're um, right in the middle of this time period for 2016. It's a very short blessing. It'll be over before you can look it up in your prayer book. It reads, uh, I'm sorry, let me read the English first and then I'll read the Hebrew. It reads, Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to count the Omer. The English or the Hebrew reads, uh, Okay, and that's all I want to read <clears throat> by way of uh, Omer blessings. If you're in the screen, if you're in the um, live study with me tonight, then you'll see that on the screen I've got my Ezekiel passage pulled up for my liturgy. And I'm not going to belabor the liturgy tonight as well. I'll just read the English, the Hebrew, and then I'll jump over to some uh, English and Greek, and then we'll just go straight into the study. If you want to know why I'm reading the liturgy that I'm reading, go back and listen to previous commentaries, maybe last week or so, and you'll see why I'm reading this particular liturgy. But let's read the English and then the Hebrew. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. This is ESV. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you... I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave you, I'm sorry, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Let's read the Hebrew of that passage as well. L'chein emor levet Yisrael ko amar Adonai Hashem lo lemaanachem ani osei beit Yisrael ki ולקחתי אתכם מן הגויים, וקיבצתי אתכם מכל הארצות, והבאתי אתכם אל אדמתכם. וזרחתי עליכם מים טהורים וטחרתם מכל תומעותיכם, ומכל גלוליכם אטהר אתכם. ונתתי לכם לב חדש ורוח חדשה את 
Vaha siroti et lev ha even. Mibsarachem venatati lachem lev basar. Ve et ruchi eten bekirbachem. Vaasiti et asher bechukai telechu umishpatai tishmuru vaasitem. Vashavtem baaretz asher natati la avotechem vahitem. Li la'am va'anuchi eche lachem le'elohim. Amen. Let's jump into some um, New Testament truths for us to digest this evening. I'm going to jump over to uh, Galatians chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 5 in the uh, ESV version. It reads, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Faith. And I know I've got on the screen verse 6 pulled up, but I'm not going to read that one tonight. Let me jump over into the uh, interlinear, uh, in other words, the Greek of this same passage. Verse, uh, starting in verse 5, again, where it, um, I'm sorry, we don't want to start in verse 5. We don't want to start in verse 1. Uh, let's read the Greek of that same passage. O anaitoi galatai, tis humas abaskunen, te aletheia me Pethes thy hois cat afalmus, Jesus Christos proegraphias dar Romanos. Tuto mananthelo mathen afhuman, ex ergo namu, topnuma elabete. E ex aquis bistios? Hutos, I'm sorry, hutos anaitoi este in arxamenoi? Pnumati nun sarki epateliste? To sauta epatete, ege kai ege? Ho un epacordagon, human topanuma kai in ergon dunamis, in human ex ergonamu, e ex aquis bistios? And we'll stop there. I think in the future, I think I'll add verse 6 in my uh, Greek. Reading, and then there's one other verse that I want to pull in for our liturgy because it's relevant for our study tonight. It's uh, our familiar uh, passage out of Galatians 2:16. If you're on the screen with me tonight, you'll see I've got a few different English versions pulled up. I thought this was kind of interesting because I'm going to read from the ESV, um, but I thought it might it was interesting to to kind of get some comparisons of a certain phrase that uh, I'm fond of picking at. In this particular, picking out in this particular version, in this particular passage. Uh, the ESV of Galatians 2.16 reads, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Notice, however, in the NLV that they translate the phrase works of the law as obeying the law. Listen to this. This is the New Living Translation. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one 
will ever be made right by with God by obeying the law. End quote. We're going to talk about this phrase, obeying the law, tonight. Indeed, we're going to talk about, we're not really going to focus on works of the law like we have done in the past. Rather, we're going to focus on this idea of called covenantal gnomism. Before I turn to there, let me just read the rattle off the Greek of that same verse real quick. Uh, the Greek of Galatians 2.16 reads, Edatis de hati u, u dekai anthropos ex ergonamu in me diapistios Christu Jesu kai hemes eis Christan Jesu nepistusimen hina dekai thomen ek pistios Christu kai uk ex ergonamu hati ex ergonamu u dekau thesitai pasosarks. Okay, uh, let's jump into our um, study for tonight. We are in this topical section called Covenantal Nomism and Justification, and I'm only going to give you one brief um, uh, recap from last week, and that is the definition of Covenantal Nomism for those of you who are not quite sure what I mean by that term. I didn't make up the term. It was coined by E.P. Sanders. And so if you're looking at the screen, let me just pull a quote from theopedia.com uh, just um, just this brief, these brief two paragraphs, and that will be the recap from last week. Covenantal nomism. <coughs> sorry about that. Covenantal nomism is the belief that first-century Palestinian Jews did not believe in works righteousness. Essentially, covenantal nomism is the belief that one is brought into the Abrahamic covenant through birth, and one stays in the covenant through works. Uh, covenantal nomism suggests that the Jewish view of relationship with God is that keeping the law is based only on a prior understanding of a relationship with God. And then Theopedia goes on to pull a quote from E.P. Sanders, the one who coined the term itself. They go on to say, E.P. Sanders is known for coining the term covenantal nomism. This term is essential to the new perspective on Paul's view. As Sanders argues that this is a pattern of religion found in Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism. This term itself is used as shorthand, that is, a shortened term used to describe a larger idea. Sanders defines this idea as such, and this is the thing I want to focus on, and then we'll just move right into the rest of the commentary. Briefly put, covenantal nomism is the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant, and that the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to its commandments, while providing means of atonement for transgressions. That's a quote from uh, E.P. Sanders' work, Paul in Palestinian Judaism. This is important because it has huge implications for one's understanding of first century Judaism, and thus for one's interpretation of how Paul interacted with it. If covenantal momentum is true, then when Jews spoke of obeying commandments, or when they required strict obedience of themselves and fellow Jews, it was because they were keeping the covenant, it was not out of legalism. So, we'll stop there, and then we'll just um, work or pick up where we left off last week. We're on the... Uh, we're near the top of page 44, and um, I'll start with the second paragraph and keep going from there. I believe, uh, personally, that the prevailing Judaisms that existed in the first century initially upset the biblical balance in the period following the Maccabees from 164 BCE to 63 BCE by teaching that legally recognized circumcision was the vehicle by which a loyal Jew as well as a non-Jew could and must enter the covenant made with Israel. Shame on them. To be sure, a whole theological council was formulated to deal with this problem in the first century. We can read both in Acts 
15, 1 through 35, as well as Acts 21, 17 through 26, the Jerusalem Council had to address the issue of forced Jewish identity for Jewish, I'm sorry, forced Jewish identity for Gentiles seeking salvation, viz. entrance or getting into the um, getting into the people group of Israel, as well as whether or not both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah needed to continue to rely on the works of the law as opposed to living in the freedom of Messiah. Recall from the verses that I read in Galatians that um, the ESV has Paul saying that it's not by works of the law that a man will be justified, and that one popular version has it reading, it's not by obeying the law. And yet, uh, if Sanders is correct, then covenant nomism is a little more than just obeying the law. It really speaks to what I describe as motive. This whole idea of getting in and staying is really, really important when it comes to understanding covenant nomism. Let's keep reading my commentary. In the end, after reading Acts 15, we know that the Messianic leaders of Jerusalem eventually decided it was not necessary to turn Gentiles into Jews in order to join Israel, which, by the way, was is a very key um, sticking point to understanding the entire Acts 15 passage. The conclusion of the council, then, was that Gentiles did not need to become proselytes, the term circumcision being shorthand for conversion to Judaism, in order to enjoy full covenant status in Israel, which naturally includes Torah participation. Indeed, as Peter had first testified in the home of Cornelius, the inclusion of the Gentiles was by the grace of God, not by means of a man-made ceremony, such as the proselyte ceremony. In order to assure their acceptance into the newly emerging Messianic communities, the Gentiles were to make a decisive break with the pagan temple and its idolatry, which would involve ridding themselves of any of the pagan customs that mark that idolatrous form of worship. And that's really the way to understand the four prohibitions that show up in the Acts 15 passage there. We have to recall that throughout the book of Acts, the Gentiles were already to be found in the mainstream Jewish synagogues as, quote, potential converts to normative Judaism, end quote. Right? That's a very good way. In fact, that whole paragraph there is basically a, uh, a snapshot of Acts 15, as best as I understand the passage itself. And it, it obviously, it, Acts 15 bears relevance to our Galatians study because of the um, centrality of the meeting itself. Um, we're going to look at Acts 15, I'm sorry, we're going to look at Acts chapter 10 in the next section when we turn towards uh we're turn to Peter Peter's vision of the sheet in Acts chapter 10 but you ju- you just have I just want to keep you um informed of the idea that this idea of covenantal nomism and uh works of the law righteousness and um the ethnic uh driven membership in Israel all of that all of that is a central topic that it's kind of it's not even really a sub theme of the New Testament in my opinion it is a primary um, topic that uh, is worth studying when you're reading through the New Testament itself. Let's keep reading my commentary. As we've already examined in section 3 above, Galatians 2.16 not only focuses on works of the law, but it also singles out justification by faith in Christ, which is Paul's antithesis to the influencer's justification by works of the law. Right? That's why I read the passage in my liturgy tonight. We see that there's two opposing ideas going on here. We're either justified by works of the law, 
or were justified by faith in Christ. Let's talk about this. What exactly is this justification that Paul champions so boldly in his letter to Galatians? And how does his view of justification compare and contrast with his fellow unsaved Jewish community's view of the same term? Right? Now, instead of focusing on the term works of law and what it entails and whether or not it, in, it, it encompasses the concept of ethnic-driven righteousness, let's now focus on the righteousness part of it. Let's focus on that side of the, of the uh, coin for a moment. The verb justified, the Greek is dikaiutai, uh, first shows up actually in Galatians at 2.16. Again, that's why I read the passage. This Greek verb can easily be translated as, quote, make righteous as well. Likewise, the noun righteousness, the Greek is dikaiosune, first shows up in Galatians 2.21. So we can see that right away, just from looking at the raw data in the Greek, we can see that the context is of, of this phrase of righteousness or justification is right within the same passage. It's very um, advisory for us to study Galatians 2.16 and don't stop our study at that, that verse, but keep going all the way through the end of, really, the, basically the end of the chapter. While being careful not to confuse noun from verb, I nevertheless tend to use justified slash justification and righteous slash righteousness somewhat interchangeably in my commentaries. Because really, in the Hebrew mindset, the justified person is the one who will live his, right, his life in a justified manner. Or we could say it this way, the righteous man will live righteously. Um, makes perfect sense from the Hebrew perspective. Unfortunately, the Greek mindset, which carries over into the Western mindset, unfortunately, in, in, into the uh, modern uh, way of thinking as well, oftentimes forgets the fact that righteous and righteousness are really two, two sides of the same coin. They are cognate. Right, You can hear them in the same word. But unfortunately, in our English language, for instance, if I say that one has faith, which is essentially the same as righteous, um, I know it's a different Greek word, but the concept is, is the same. If one has faith, we can't say that one faithed. Uh, the, the, um, the, the noun doesn't give birth to a corresponding verb, at least in some of the, lang in some of the words that we use. So, um, for instance, if, I'm, if I say I'm righteous, I can't say that... Uh, I'm say I'm sorry. If I say that I am a righteous person, I can't describe the um, actions that I do as righteous or something to the effect. So the point I'm trying to, to emphasize is just be aware of the fact that in the Greek and in the Hebrew, um, the words are related to one another, and they they're really um, they're really designed to function with the the concepts uh, working in tandem. So noun and verb work together. That's the point I want to make. So for that reason, don't get lost in my commentary when I use justified, justification, righteousness, righteous, interchangeably, etc. Dunn, James D.G. Dunn, one of my favorite authors here, he carefully notes the start and finish context of Paul's use of this term justified. Notice this. This will be a careful passage to um, stop and chew on for a moment. Let's take a quote from his commentary to the new perspective on Paul. Because of its relevance, I'm going to quote him at length. All right. By the way, um, I think you can Google search this particular commentary. Um, a good portion of it is available online. James D.G. Dunn himself posted it because it used to be a, a part of a, um, a Christian newsletter, a Christian forum. I can't remember the, the name of it, but it was a, 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 a very um, 
uh, kind of a technical newsletter, but nevertheless, it is available online, so just Google search it. The New Perspective on Paul by James D.G. Dunn, D-U-N-N. So let's lift a quote from that work. Quote, The crucial fact remains that in the Antioch incident and in Galatians, Paul was confronted by a view which insisted that covenant status could not be sustained without works of the law. In Jewish covenant theology, remember, we're talking about covenantal gnomism. In Jewish covenant theology, that also meant final vindication could not be assured without works of the law. And in the Jewish Christian adaptation of that, covenant status and final vindication depended on justification by faith, completed by works of the law, which is the clear implication of Galatians 3, 2 through 5, as well as you can um, reference James, Jacob, 2, 20 through 2, um, 24, I believe there. Let's keep reading. Done. Paul's point is to insist precisely that the ongoing process of salvation is wholly a peace with its beginning, that at their initial acceptance by God was through faith, so is their continuation. So uh, we're seeing the salvation picture from start to finish. They start with God through faith, and they continue with God through faith. And that's Galatians two, uh, 3, 2 through 5. Um, we might read that again next week. And their final acceptance of God, which we can read about in Galatians 5, 5 as well. Let's keep reading done. Consequently, the range of tenses in Galatians 2.16, this is going to be interesting. Um, Dunn's going to focus on this phrase uh, Galatians in Galatians 2.16, which is um, uh, uh, this works of the law. Dunn's going to focus on that for a moment and, and, and highlight how the fact that uh, uh, the, um, the, the verb tenses that I keep highlighting is going to be bear uh, relevance for us. So, j- just before I read, um, just before I read, done. Let me just jump over real quick to Galatians two sixteen. If you're on the screen, with, if you're in the uh, class with me tonight, you'll see I've got it pulled up, and you'll know that I highlighted uh, last week. Let me just pull up the highlighter tool. Um, how's that? So we got uh, Dikaiutai is justified, and you'll notice um, it's a verb in the. Um, present indicative. And then we see this same word that shows up again um, down here. The guy Thoman, we might be justified. There is a verb in the um, aorist subjunctive tense. And then it shows up one more time in the passage, three times, right? shows up one more time down here at the bottom. Dikaiothesotai uh, will be justified. This time it's in the verb. It's a verb in the future indicative. So the first time it's a verb in the uh, present indicative, and then it shows up as a verb in the aorist subjunctive, and then it shows up as a verb in the future indicative. And um, Dunn's going to highlight the the fact that this shows up these uh, three times. So um, that's my primer for what we're going to be reading about. So let's go back to Dunn, and let's pick up the reading. We're right about the middle of the passage, uh, Dunn's quote. Consequently, the range of tenses in Galatians 2.16 probably denotes a richer theology of justification than Risenen allows, speaking of another Christian author there. To paraphrase the verse, this is Dunn's paraphrase of Galatians 2.16. Since man is justified through faith in Jesus Christ, the present tense can cover the whole process. We have believed in Christ Jesus, aorist equals transfer, 
in order that we might be justified from faith in Christ and not from works of law. The aorist tense can refer to the goal of the whole process, as in 2.17, the point being that justification is by faith from start to finish, because, as will become apparent in the Last Judgment, no flesh will be justified by works of law, end quote, and will be justified there is in the, um, the the future tense. So this seems to be a this seems a superior solution to Horizonans who can only maintain his attempt to limit the verb to transfer terminology by allowing that in effect one has to enter twice, first here and then at the final judgment. That's basically Horizonans' view of justification is that we enter into justification once here during this life and then we enter into justification again at the final judgment. Uh, Dunn goes on to continue, with this admission, my point has been largely conceded, and that is, Galatians 2.16 has in view not only the initial act of acceptance, but the question of what then is necessary to ensure final acceptance. Dunn goes on to uh, continue. Of course, Paul has in mind not just justification by faith, but justification by faith in Christ. Justification by faith in Christ is, if you like, the Jewish-Christian refinement of Jewish election theology, which Dunn characterized as justification by faith to underscore the presupposition of divine grace, which is central to that theology. It is that Jewish-Christian understanding which provides Paul with sufficient common ground for his dialogue with his fellow Jewish believers in Christ, and out of that, Paul develops his own more characteristic emphasis. You can reference Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Again, this is basically Dunn's um, exegesis of this particular passage. Dunn goes on to say, I do not dispute that the end result of this development was a breach between rabbinic Judaism and Christianity. I do dispute that this was ever Paul's intention or that it was inevitable within the context of the much broader stream of pre-70 Judaism. With that broader stream, Paul's interpretation of covenant and promise was a legitimate option for Jews and Judaism within a wider range of options. End quote. You can see, again, footnote 36 was lifted from Dunn's work, The New Perspective on Paul. And again, I highly recommend you go back and read the entire um, study if you want to, to get a, a better understanding of Galatians 2.16. Uh, the only point I want to emphasize in bringing up that quote before I move forward in my own commentary is be aware that those three phrases of justification, those three uses in the passage, are Paul's way of perhaps giving us the, the concept, the idea, that justification is not merely this one-time event. It's not merely how one enters into the saved people group of God. It's not near it's not merely entry language, entry point language or transfer language as uh Reisenen describes it. Rather, recall that E. P. Sanders describes covenantal nomism as as um explaining both getting in and staying in. So the point that we're going to start um, emphasizing as we're studying covenantal nomism and justification, especially as it impacts us in Paul's writings, is that from a first century perspective, justification that is being declared righteous in God has both bookends in view. If I can jump from the metaphor of the coin with two sides now to two bookends instead. One of the bookends is getting in 
to, that is to say, becoming justified, becoming righteous, being declared as righteous at the outset. And the other bookend is staying righteous or being declared righteous by God at the final day of judgment when God, uh, when we all stand before God and receive our rewards. And so the, the concept of covenantal nomism encapsulates both of those sides of, or both of those bookends. And that is extremely important as we study through Paul and through Paul's writings. When we read about justification, we can't simply... Um, Assume that Paul's only talking about salvation, and yet we can't dismiss the fact that Paul is also talking about justification, right? Um, I'm sorry, sanctification. Justification and sanctification. There's so many metaphors I could use. The, 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 the bookends, the A to Z, the two sides of the same coin, the justification and sanctification. However you want to describe it, I'm trying to get you to, to uh, wrap your mind around this idea that there are really two sides to one concept. One word, but with two uh, aspects to it. So, let's keep reading my commentary with it, right at the bottom of page 46. I'm sorry, the bottom of page 45. We shall hear more from Dunn and Justification in the excursus section on Galatians 2.16 below. For now, let us hear from N.T. Wright on this concept of justification. Top of page 46. I tend not to completely understand how Wright can come to his conclusions that the Torah was only a temporary provision until the coming of Messiah. Nevertheless, his summary comments on works of law and justification are beneficial towards my primary thesis, and as such, worth repeating here for our careful consideration. Here's a quote from Wright. Quote, By declaring that certain people are within the covenant, the biblical doctrine of justification inevitably declares that others, at least for the moment, are not within the covenant. Broadly speaking, that means unbelievers. Paul is concerned with the attempt to seek justification on grounds other than those set out above grace and faith, the cross and the spirit. The negative result of the doctrine is polemic against all spurious justification. Wright goes on to say, the central claim against which this polemic is aimed is the boast that covenant membership is for Jews and Jews only, with very few exceptions. Paul would have approved of John the Baptist's warning against reliance on physical membership of Abraham's family. Um, there are some footnotes in the middle of this quote that I forgot to uh, list. So I apologize for that. That's why you see a number 16 and number 17. Wright goes on to say, Jewish birth, circumcision, and possession of the law are in fact in themselves neither necessary, that is according to Romans 4, 4 nor sufficient, uh, read Romans 9, they're neither necessary nor sufficient qualifications for membership within the covenant. Works of the law were not, as is usually thought, the attempt to earn salvation de novo. They were the attempt to prove by obedience to law given to the Jews, that one was already a member of Abraham's family. Such an attempt is both misguided, because the covenant was always designed to include Gentiles as well as Jews, and impossible because of universal sin, which the law merely showed up. Wright goes on to conclude, The doctrine of justification therefore provides both a positive and a negative answer to the question, Who are the true children of Abraham? End quote. And uh, footnote number 37 shows that this was lifted from N.T. Wright's own webpage. Uh, 
uh, ntwritepage.com. Okay, so let's keep reading my commentary, and I think it's kind of self-explanatory what's going on. Speaking specifically about Peter and Paul in Galatians 2.15 and following, Wright goes on to conclude, quote, there's another quote from Wright, I think it's from the same uh, website, the debate about table fellowship recorded in Galatians 2 is therefore no peripheral issue, loosely related to the real question. It raises precisely the question of justification. Who is within the covenant family? That's the question of justification that we're dealing with in this section tonight. Peter's behavior, this is right still speaking, Peter's behavior at Antioch had implied that only Jews were within the covenant, that they were really within the covenant, and that Gentiles were at best second-class citizens. Paul's reply in 2.15 and following, often taken completely out of this context, is so robbed of its true meaning, is this. And this is going to be Wright's exegesis of uh, Galatians 2.15 and 16, essentially. Here's Wright. Justification is not based on the fact of being a Jew, nor on keeping the Jewish law, but on faith. Let me pause for a moment. That sentence alone is my personal understanding of works of law. Being a Jew and keeping the Jewish law. Being a Jew is the first side of the coin. Keeping the Jewish law is the other side of the coin. Those two sides together form the coin that I describe as works of the law. Or, alternately, the broader term is covenantal nomism. But essentially, they, those two terms are um, uh, they work in tandem with one another. So, let's keep reading right. And if Jewish Christians have thereby technically become sinners by eating with Gentiles, this does not involve actual sin. Whereas if they insist on living under the law, they will be shown up. They will they will be shown up as transgressors. The crucified and risen Messiah means a crucified and risen Israel, so that Christian Jews like Paul have left behind on the cross the fleshly status defined by possession of the law. To go back to the law as the basis of one's own righteous status would be to spurn the grace of God, to behave as though the crucifixion of the Messiah were unnecessary. End quote. Well, actually, his quotes continues. I apologize. Let's keep reading. This is right. Bottom of page 46. From this point of view, this is still right. From this point of view, the argument of Galatians flows as smoothly as Paul's agitation will allow. The quotation from Genesis 15.6, that is where Abraham was uh, counted credited as righteous, in Galatians 3.6 is not an arbitrary proof text or subtle rabbinic ploy. The whole chapter, in Genesis by the way, deals with the question as to who Abraham's children, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 3, deals with the question as to who Abraham's children really are, as becomes clear when we read the conclusion in Galatians 3.29. Abraham's family cannot be the people of the law. The law only brought a curse. And anyway, was only a temporary provision until the coming of the Messiah. That's the sentence that I disagree with Wright, by the way. Jesus has taken the curse on himself. This is Wright's conclusion. Jesus has taken the curse on himself, enabling God to fulfill the purpose of the covenant, which was that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. End quote. Again, uh, everything that Wright has to say about uh, understanding Paul there is so right on the mark, except for that little sentence that mentions that the law was only a temporary provision until the coming of Messiah. I wish I could sit down and chat with Wright and see if I can understand that uh, 
quote a little better, understand his position. Anyway, uh, 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 this entire um, quote from Wright, uh, in fact, is a lift from that same web page, his own website. So, uh, let's keep reading my own commentary. We're on the top of page 47. Lastly, returning to Sanders and his getting and his staying in language, we find these comments on righteousness in Paul, in his famous Paul and Palestinian Judaism work. And this is going to be a repeat for my preface section, which was 40-something pages earlier, right? This is uh, E.P. Sanders again. Quote, One does not find in Paul any trace of the Greek and Hellenistic Jewish distinction between being righteous, man, slash man, and pious, man, slash God. In other words, let me just pause and explain what he means by man, slash man, man, slash God. Um, from man's perspective, it's easy for the Jewish people to thought that they were righteous and that anything, anyone who was not a Jew was unrighteous. Make sense? So man, the first man there is Jewish man, and the second man there is Gentile man. Uh, but when we talk about righteousness, we also see the, um, in other words, the first man-man is the horizontal picture, man versus man. But the second uh, man-slash-God is the vertical picture. Are we righteous in God's sight, or are we unrighteous in God's sight? That's the point that uh, Sanders is trying to make. Nor is righteousness in Paul one virtue among others. Sanders goes on to say, Here, however, there's also a major shift. For to be righteous in Jewish literature means to obey the Torah and to repent of transgression. But in Paul, it means to be saved by Christ. Very important quote there. Most succinctly, righteousness in Judaism is a term which implies the maintenance of status among the group of the elect. In Paul, it is a transfer term. In other words, righteousness gets transferred from, from the Messiah's account to our account. In Judaism, that is, commitment to the covenant puts one in, that is, into the covenant, while obedience, righteousness, subsequently keeps one in the covenant. Let me pause for a moment. I just want to highlight here, because I don't want this to go over your head. I will, I'll be brief. This is the importance of understanding the, uh, the uh, first century view of justification from a Jewish personal perspective. One becomes righteousness, that is to say, becomes a covenant member, by being a Jew or becoming a Jew through the proselyte ceremony. And therefore, that first level of righteousness is defined as the behavior, I'm sorry, is defined as the um, forensic slash positional form of righteousness. But then one, and this is of course according to the Jewish self-understanding, one stays righteous, that is the behavioral form of righteousness, one maintains his covenant membership by maintaining a, um, um, uh, maintaining covenant membership, maintaining Torah obedience. In other words, they keep the commandments, which uh, effectively keeps them from uh, falling into the trap of idolatry, keeps them from being cut off by violating uh, capital fences, things like that. So righteousness has those two aspects to us. It's the forensic righteousness, getting in, and the behavioral righteousness, staying in. And we have to, we have to emphasize the importance of um, the Jewish mindset of the first century, that getting in was not done by keeping the commandments, getting in was done by ethnicity, and staying in was done by, not by ethnicity, but by um, doing the Torah. And that whole package is what I call works of the law. So, let's keep reading Sanders. Um, in Paul, let me back up one sentence. In Paul, 
uh, righteousness is a transfer term. In Judaism, that is, commitment to the covenant puts one in, while obedience, righteousness, subsequently keeps one in. In Paul's usage, be made righteous, be justified, is a term indicating getting in, not staying in the body of the saved. How does, how does one get in? How do you become justified? How do we get into the body of the saved? Thus, when Paul says that one cannot be made righteous by works of the law, he means that one cannot, by works of the law, transfer to the body of the saved. In other words, one cannot, by being a Jew and maintaining your covenant membership, transfer to the body of the saved. Primarily, Paul's saying one cannot transfer to the body of the saved by Jewish ethnicity. Sanders goes on to say, When Judaism said that one is righteous who obeys the law, the meaning is that one thereby stays in the covenant, not gets in. See the note, notice the important difference? The uh, conclusion that Sanders offers is the debate about righteousness by faith or by works of the law thus turns out to result from the different usage of the righteous word group, end quote. And you'll see if you scroll down, footnote number 35 is that important Paul and Palestinian Judaism uh, work all over again, the uh, famous 1977 work, which, by the way, you can read online. I have a pastor friend who uploaded that. Um, he took his own copy of the book. I won't say who he was. He took his own copy of the book and s meticulously scanned each page of that book so that it is now a PDF document. And he posted on his website. And uh, I, I think that might be a copyright violation myself, but I'm not sure. Nevertheless, uh, if you Google search it, you can read uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism online. But that's neither here nor there. Let's keep reading my commentary. Uh, we're near the bottom of page, um, page 47. Systematic theology recognizes that God relates to mankind on at least two different levels. We got the temporal, and we've got the eternal, right? With regards to Israel, according to the flesh, Paul teaches that, quote, to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, end quote. That's Romans 9, 4 and 5 out of the uh, ESV. This is my own thoughts. Essentially, on a temporal level, Israel is the one true chosen people of group of God, right? Exclusively in relation with the one true God of the universe. And since God cannot change, right? We read in Malachi 3.6, God's choosing Israel is an eternal position. His election, in, re in regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's a lift from uh, Romans 11, 28 and 29 out of the ESV. I go on to say, the ethnic people group commonly referred to as Jewish Israel is characterized by covenantal nomism with its attendant works of the law. Even though they are partially hardened to the truth of their own Messiah uh, via Romans 11.25, they do in fact possess a righteousness, a justification, that although rooted in the flesh, the temporal part of it, is nevertheless not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. You guys understand what I'm saying there? Let me pause just for a brief moment. 
recall that in previous um, teachings that I read a passage out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 25, where Moses, speaking of the commandments that Israel was to keep, describes that as our righteousness. It will be our righteousness, Moshe says, if we continue to keep all of these commandments. And we already know that the righteousness, the tzedakah that Moses is describing in the Deuteronomy 6.25 verse, cannot really mean salvation righteousness. It cannot be forensic righteousness when he says it will be our righteousness if we do all of these commandments. Because if that were the case, then Moses is describing salvation as bound up with keeping the law. But we know that's not the case because the, the uh, Torah is not a salvific document in that way. Instead, what we know then is that Moshe must be describing behavioral righteousness. In other words, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do from God's perspective. So that's what I'm trying to say here, that Israel is characterized by their, by their righteousness on a, um, on a, uh, 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 behavioral perspective, um, in other words, it's not wrong to use that phrase justified. Israel is justified by keeping the law. Israel is righteous by keeping the law. Because it's the same word group. And uh, it becomes a little challenging for us to remind ourselves of that fact. But nevertheless, we have to do it anyway. Let's keep reading my own commentary. To wit, we're at the top of page 48. To wit, Shaul himself recognizes that zeal for God, covenantal nomism, is an admirable quality after all, if only such zeal would drive the Torah-pursuant Jew into the waiting arms of the teacher of righteousness. You can reference Matthew 23.37 for that. Let's read a quote from Galatians 3.24 in my own commentary. Quote, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. End quote. That's Galatians 3.24 from the ESV. Notice in that verse that um, the law, the Torah, is our paedagogos, uh, is the Greek word for guardian there. It is our boy tutor. It's the one that leads us to the teacher of righteousness, which is Messiah himself. We're going to exegete that passage when the time comes uh, later on in my, um, in my uh, commentary. But if you're curious as what how I interpret that passage, uh, because it does seem to say, teach, that the law has a beginning and an ending point. That is to say, it was our... It was our guardian until Christ came, right? Which seems to imply, like the Christian commentaries teach, seems to imply in this verse that the law came to an end after Christ, uh, of which you, most of you already know that, that, that I disagree with that position. So if you're interested in what my position is on this particular verse and you're not willing to wait however many months it's going to take for us to reach the uh, excursus section... Um, just go online to my website at tatesatora.com and click on the commentary and um, scroll all the way down to the excursus and read my position on that verse itself. All right, let's keep reading. Actually, I think I give you a little teaser right here in my commentary tonight. So, I think we'll uh, keep reading. We're at the top of page 48. These are my own thoughts. The Greek of guardian in this verse is paedagogos, as I mentioned. As I note in my excursus section below to this verse, the TSBD, Thayers and Smith's Bible Dictionary, defines this word as, quote, a tutor, in essence, a guardian and guide of boys. Among the Greeks, 
and the Romans, the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them before arriving at the age of manhood, end quote. And I lifted that from the uh, Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary on the uh, uh, Pedagogos. So, let's keep reading my own commentary. The point of Paul's argument here is that the Torah, this is my uh, short um, excursus on Galatians 3.24, the point of Paul's argument here is that the Torah is a tool in the hands of the Ruach HaKodesh, designed by the Father to lead us to the teacher of righteousness. Make sense? The Holy Spirit uses the Torah to lead the individual to the teacher of righteousness. The Torah is not the teacher in and of itself. The Torah is not the goal. Messiah is the goal. The Torah functions to lead the unregenerate man to faith in the central object. I'm sorry, uh, to lead the unregenerate man to faith in the central object of the Torah, which is Yeshua of Nazareth. Let's keep reading. I've got about, I think I want to go for another. Oh, let's see, let's go for another 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then I'll uh, park the commentary. Because uh, we're making good headway here. There's only 12 pages in this section, and we're already on, on the 8th of those 12 pages. Thus, Paul affirms the Torah's positive function in the place and the plans of God, in that Torah represents the object of national Israel's nomistic pursuit. Because, as he is going to teach elsewhere in Romans, the only reason faithless Israel misses the Messiah the very goal of the Torah, which is Romans 10.4, is because her eyes are blinded by her own ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. Let's read this quote from Romans 9. I would love to really just do a whole study on this passage, but let's read it for our study tonight. Quote, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. End quote. That's again Romans 9, 30-32, uh, as rendered out of the ESV. Notice in the passage that the Gentiles pursue righteousness and have attained it, but notice that Israel pursues a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not succeed in reaching that law. It's almost like there's a typo, right? Shouldn't Paul have said that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, but Israel who pursued righteousness? Paul instead says that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. And then, then he goes on to say they did not succeed in reaching that law. Shouldn't he have said that they did not succeed in reaching that righteousness? Notice the point I'm trying to make there? It's um, it's subtle, I know, and I don't have time to develop the context. Um, but suffice to say, uh, covenantal nomism, this, the topic that we're um, focusing on tonight, covenantal nomism was Israel's pursuit of a law-based lifestyle. And it was done not because their pursuit would lead to salvation, but that their pursuit would lead to being declared behaviorally righteous. 
That's the point I think that Paul's trying to emphasize in the Romans 9.30 passage. And the assumption when when one pursues a, uh, a declaration of behavioral righteousness, the assumption is that one began as a righteous person based on their birth position or based on their their declaration um, through the uh, proselyte ceremony. In other words, one began the path of being declared righteous when they were born a Jew. So if the goal of being righteous on the day of judgment, the goal of being declared righteous by God on the day of judgment, is in fact the goal in view for in fact... What's the point of living righteous your entire being born righteous as a Jew and and living righteous as a Jew if you're not going to um, end up with what we call the retirement package, right? If it doesn't go carry over into the age to come, if there is no um, eternity, then you know what's the point of living righteous in this life at all? If if all of it's just going to disappear when we die. So we see that the position that Judaism in the first century was working from primarily was essentially the Pharisaic belief in the uh, resurrection, the belief in the age to come. You remember from your Sunday school lessons that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees did not. So I hold to the Pharisaic position, the, the same position that Paul would have held to, the same position that Yeshua taught, and that is that one day there will be a resurrection. And indeed, from the covenantal nomism perspective, to be declared righteous is to work towards and hope for the goal of being declared righteous in the resurrection. You see my point? That's the emphasis of the uh, covenantal nomistic perspective. And that's why we have a heavy emphasis on maintaining covenant membership as a religious Jew, as a Torah-obedient Jew. Okay, let's keep reading my commentary. I'm, I think I'll probably conclude uh, with uh, just before we read all these passages. So, Hashem designed the, cor- the Torah to be kept. Plain and simple. That's what I'm really trying to teach in my Galatians commentary. After all, uh, as I uh, digress, it's no secret that you can read numerous commentaries on the book of Galatians from a Christian perspective and their general conclusion is that the Torah is done away with. We don't need to keep the Torah anymore. Now that we're in Messiah, the law is done away with. I disagree. Hashem designed the Torah to be kept even after you come to faith in Yeshua. In fact, even more so after you come to faith in Yeshua. So based on that, there is a sense of covenant nomism that is accurate. Right? We are, in fact, as covenant members designed and uh, expected to keep the covenant. That's my kind of simplistic uh, definition of covenantal nomism. Nomism part is the law-keeping part, and covenant part, covenantal, of course, roots are law-keeping in covenant membership. God desires to reward those who pursue obedience. Read Romans 2, 6 and 7 again. The master himself affirms the fact that keeping and teaching others to keep even the least of the commandments is accompanied by a reward. Let's read Matthew 5.19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, speaking of the commandments, and teaches them, speaking of the commandments, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. End quote. Those are Yeshua's words, people. Those are Yeshua's words. Those aren't my thoughts. Those are Yeshua's thoughts. 
Also, these are my own thoughts, <laughs> also God through Moshe instructed that Israel's obedience to his ways would result in righteousness, viz. reward follows obedience. Let's, uh, let's read a passage out of, at, out of the, um, Deuteronomy again. This is the passage I highlighted earlier. Quote, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. End quote. That's Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25 from the ESV. And then let me read one more verse, one more passage, um, two more passages, and then we'll draw the, this study tonight to a close. Also take note of the positive benefits provided by Torah in this well-known passage from the writings. This is Psalm 19, 7 through 11 out of the ESV. Quote, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. End quote. Likewise, Paul recognizes that to obey Torah as a circumcised, albeit perhaps fleshly Jew, was in fact a good thing, because even from a limited temporal perspective, obedience draws the temporal rewards, righteousness slash justification of God. And I keep inserting the word righteousness and justification when I'm talking about temporal, because righteousness and justification also have temporal aspects to them. And the temporal slash shadows, if you want to call them that, they're not bad. They're actually good. Don't you want to be declared righteous by God on a, on a behavioral level? Yes, you do. If you're honest with yourself, you really do. Let's read a, a quote from Romans uh, real quick. Quote, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. There's our Greek word, dikaiosune, uh, I believe again. Uh, they are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And if I'm correct, uh, the word righteous and justified in the ESV are really the same uh, root words. The dikaiosune uh, or dikaiao or dikai... The chaos word group, same same root words there. For circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. End quote. So, um, very nice quote, nicely packaged. Notice Paul is is praising keeping the law there. The doers of the law will be justified. The justification there we're referring to in that passage cannot be a salvation. We can't insert the word salvation there. In other words, Paul's not saying, but the doers of the law who will be saved. It's not the hearers of the law who will be saved before God, but the doers of the law who will be saved. That's not what Paul's saying. We know that's not what Paul's saying, because otherwise he's teaching salvation by works, a, a position we know is untenable. Instead, the righteous before God is this idea of behavioral righteousness, which is couched within the person who is already declared forensically righteous. That's the point I'm trying to make. The doers of law will be justified because the person who is declared salvifically righteous from the biblical perspective will also have righteous actions that follow. He will have righteous deeds that 
are uh, concomitant with his faith in Messiah. That's the, really the point I'm trying to make in our discussion on uh, covenantal nomism and justification. It's that if you really are saved, you will do the law. That's that's really what I'm trying to say. If you're saved, you will keep the law. So it's such a it's such a confusing position in my studies, in my understanding of the uh, um, of the Bible, how the the uh, the traditional Christian position. And I'll close with this. It's my it's such, it's confusing to me how the traditional Christian position can teach that once we become saved, we jettison the law, that we walk away from the law, that we that we throw off the yoke of the law. I don't see how that's tenable. I don't see how we can um, purport that. I don't see how that lines up with the with Paul's idea that it's, it is the person who is genuinely saved that actually has genuine works of righteousness that follow. That the, the tree that is genuinely alive, viz. saved, is the tree that will actually have fruit, that will bear fruit. That is, walk into um, the Torah keep law, keep the righteous requirement of the law. In fact, Paul says that in Romans chapter 8, that we who are saved, we who are of faith, we who walk by the Spirit, actually keep the righteous the righteous requirement. We, we, we fulfill the law in that sense. So, I think I'll stop there because uh, uh, I've stood on my podium and I've done my little bit of preaching for tonight. So, I appreciate everyone who has uh, followed along with me thus far. And I, I, I say this in closing, I, I want you to hear my heart. As a Messianic Jewish man who does champion a Torah-obedient lifestyle for Christians, both Jew and Gentile, I'm not judging anyone. I, it's not my place to judge. I'm not judging you. If you're listening to my commentary tonight, and you don't perhaps espouse to keeping the Torah for, for Gentile Christians, or for believers at all, and you don't keep Seventh-day Sabbath, and you don't keep kosher, and you don't circumcise your children and keep the festivals, etc. I'm not judging you for that. I'm not judging you for that. You are my brother and Messiah. And all I can really say is that I challenge you to continue to press in closer with your walk with God and uh, continue to avail yourself of the scriptures. The very same challenges that I challenge myself with every day that I wake up, right? Today is another day for me to press in closer to the walk of the Master. Another day that I can seek to imitate the lifestyle of Yeshua, my Lord. Another day that I can seek to be filled with the Spirit of God and walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Amen? It's the same challenge I give myself. And so to that degree, when I encounter things in my life that don't line up with the Torah things that don't line up with the truths of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, then I pray, Holy Spirit, wash me, cleanse me, renew me, or as Paul would put it, renew my mind, right? Change me from the inside. Cause my thinking to be lined up with God's thinking. I want to think like God. I don't want to think like fleshly Ariel. I want to be pleasing to God and do what is pleasing in His sight. Not perfectly, not until I reach heaven. But right now, I seek to be obedient to Torah because it is my responsibility as a genuine covenant member who has been set free by the blood of Messiah. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you so much for drawing us close to you, for bringing us into a right relationship with you, not via ethnicity, <coughs> 
not via our own works righteousness, not by good deeds, but Lord, you brought us in by the blood of your son, Yeshua. Continue to raise us up and to cause us to be lights and to be a witness. And Father, we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>